sat down while I preached, so this is not me trying to be uh, Uncle Brian or anything like that. I'm just, I was going to say this is not me trying to be cool, and I thought, I, just, I could see the thought clouds over your head. Don't worry, you're not. Mission accomplished. But we are so glad that you're here, and um, if you're visiting, I want to say a special welcome to you, and say Merry Christmas to you on behalf of our church. Um, We have been studying through the last book of the Bible this fall, the book of Revelation, and we took a break during Advent for these four Sundays leading up to Christmas. And uh, we don't follow the church calendar very closely, but we do like to celebrate the high days like Easter and uh, Christmas. So this will be our last Sunday of Advent, and we're looking at passages related to the Incarnation, um, God taking on human flesh, remaining fully God, but becoming fully man in the person of Jesus Christ. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2 this morning. And if you, are, um, if you don't have a Bible, the whole text I'm going to be using is there in the bulletin. I was away on sabbatical. Man, this is weird. If y'all can handle it, I can. Uh, I was away on sabbatical this summer, and uh, almost the last Sunday that I was gone, one of my former professors preached here. Paul Koistra preached for y'all. And uh, obviously I was out that Sunday, but I listened to his sermon online. And he told a story. I'd heard a lot of his stories in class, but there's a lot I haven't heard. And, And he told a story I'd never heard. He said when he was 15 years old, brand new driver's license, and, um, and I think a, a fairly new Christian, he wanted to ask this girl out. And this is going to be his very first date. He's never asked out a girl before. So he calls this girl on the phone, and before anyone can answer, he hangs up the phone. Just, just chickens out. A little bit later, he calls back. She answers. He hangs up the phone again. Just uh, terrified. So he prayed and said, Lord, here's what I want to do. I want to drive downtown and I want to turn down this street that I never go down. This is crazy. And I want you to just let her walk by and then I'm going to pull over and ask her if she needs a ride then I'm going to ask her out. So he got in his car and went downtown and took the ride and she was there. Now, And he, he said, you know, hey, should we read too much into that? He said, no, but I think that was God showing a 15-year-old boy who didn't have a lot of Christian friends, really hardly any, that it was God saying, I'm real. This is a very familiar passage. We, we, it's a go-to passage for Christmas time. And, and in some ways, I, I've seen it with new eyes. I don't mean that, that I've come to all different conclusions about it. I just I, I feel like things have jumped out that I never noticed before. They've always been there. And one thing I'd like you to look for is this. It's God in an unusual group of people, people who are not naturally followers of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's God doing some very unusual things in their lives to say, I'm real. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. 
And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask as we do so many Sundays that whether we come and and this uh, grabs us right from the beginning or whether we come and just we're very distant from it or preoccupied or it's new to us or it just doesn't connect with us, that you, by you working in our lives, you would cause this to be to us what it is, that your word would be food and we wouldn't just talk about it, but we would eat it. And it would be food for our hearts and souls. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Somebody that uh, I, I quote from time to time, and a lot of preachers quote, I try not to overquote, is C.S. Lewis, uh, I think, unarguably the most famous Christian writer of the 20th century. And uh, probably his most well known book, besides the, the children's stories that he wrote, was Mere Christianity. And uh, it hit me. One of the most famous passages from it is what I'm about to read, and I don't think I've ever quoted this before, for whatever that's worth, but just just a a quick little little snippet here. Lewis, and and if you don't know about his life, besides being a massive intellect who uh, taught at both Oxford and Cambridge universities, he was an atheist before his conversion. He did not go to college uh, inclined to believe in Jesus. And here's what he writes later in his life. He says that you can shut Jesus Christ up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And he knew that from firsthand experience. Now, the passage that we're looking at Uh, Jesus has not begun teaching anything. He's still a baby. But the reason I cite that is this, is that when you look from the beginning, I mean, from His birth, when people respond to the appearance of the Messiah, they really respond. In other words, when they know that the Messiah has shown up, 
they don't just know that informationally, but it evokes a response. And here's why I think that's important to consider going into this passage. This is Christmas. Now, this lands differently with different people, but if you, if you do profess to follow Jesus, know Him, if you love these hymns, grew up with them, if you love this time of year, if you're wearing red right now, possibly, uh, or green, then, you know, it, you're inclined to feel good about these things. But here's the thing. You can feel good about it and not really be responding to Him. It can be nostalgia. It can be enjoyment of the traditions. But you're not really responding to Him. When people met the Messiah, it evoked a response. So I want to look at this passage, and I want to look at three different, let's just say three different parties that came into, who encountered the birth of the Jewish king and what their responses were. Now, here's the three parties. The first one is King Herod. He's the first character that you meet in this text. And it's interesting, uh, there's a historian named Paul Meyer, and he says that we know more about this King Herod. There were several King, Kings Herod. But we know more about this one than we do about Caesar Augustus, or Julius Caesar, or Alexander the Great, or even the Apostle Paul. There's so much historic record left behind. And what we know of him absolutely dovetails with the impression that you get in this text. He was probably about 70 years old at the time of this, of this event. He was the king of Judea. He was paranoid. He was paranoid to the point of violence. That's well documented. He killed one of his own wives. He killed at least two of his own sons in his paranoia besides who knows who else. He was so violent that the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, uh, denounced him, which was a dangerous thing to do. And that's one thing to know about him. But this is very important. Since he was the king of Judea, sort of, he, sort of a nominal Jew, sort of bought into it, I guess, for street cred with the people that he was ruling, but not a devout man, he was, not, he was not viewed as a devout man by the, by the Jewish leaders, but his title was King of the Jews. Very important. That's Herod. Now then you get these mysterious figures, the second parties, the wise men, or uh, your, your translation might say the magi. Who are the magi? First off, the text never says there's three. And it never says they're riding camels. I just We've got this mental picture... Uh, and for some reason in mind, they have turbans. They're not cloth turbans. They're turbans that have like a metal point at the top. I don't, I don't know why that is. That's how I see them. There may have been three. There may have been 20. Just traditionally, we've gone toward three, I think, because of the three gifts. But who are these guys? They're from the east. There were several nations that had magi. Um, Arabia, Babylon, uh, Persia. Egypt, that part of the world. They were uh, a priestly caste of religious advisors, sort of a special, kind of just a special set to themselves. They were astrologers, not astronomers, astrologers, although I think they loved and trafficked in astronomy and in magic and in dreams. And in omens, in portents, they would be religious advisors to rulers 
in their country. Those are the Magi. They may, we don't know for sure, they may have been exposed to Jewish scriptures. Because the Jews before this had been scattered, these men, because they thought about the supernatural all the time, they may have read the books of Moses. And if they had, that's intriguing. Because one of the prophecies of the Messiah, I actually preached on this last December, is from the book of Numbers. And it says that a star was going to rise out of Judah. And the star is the Messiah. They may have known that passage. They may not have. That's that crew. But then there's another group, and I don't know if you caught this. Look in verse, look in verse 5. Excuse me, verse 4. It says, Herod gets this question. He, he meets these magi. Um, they throw him a curveball. And then in verse 4 it says, Assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people. Now, this is taking place in Jerusalem. You could find priests in different parts of Judea, scribes in different parts. Well, no, you wouldn't find them out, priests outside of Jerusalem, but you'd find scribes in other areas. But in Jerusalem, that would be a target-rich environment for these guys. These are not just clergy. These are the go-to guys. These are the biblical and theological experts of the first century Jewish world. And he assembles them to ask them a theological question. So those, those are the three groups. What are their responses to, to the appearance of the Jewish king? First off, Herod. Uh, because Herod was an evil man and a violent man, and by the way, we're not even reading the passage that follows this. If you've ever heard of the, uh, the so-called massacre of the innocents, that was the decision on Herod's part when he realized that the Magi didn't do what he asked. They didn't come back and tell him where the Messiah was. They went back to their own country he became so furious that he had all the children of a certain age killed in Bethlehem. That was the kind of man he was. So we remember him as being ruthless. And we don't often think of him having any good qualities. And as strange as this sounds, he actually possessed a good quality. He was insightful. What do we mean by that? Look again in verse 3. The Magi come riding in. In verse 2 it says, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews. Now remember, he is insecure and paranoid to the point of violence. One of his titles is king of the Jews. These strangers from another country ride in and ask, where's the one who's born king of the Jews? That would go to the heart of hearts of his fears and insecurities. So what does it say in verse 3? When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And most commentators agree... The reason it says all Jerusalem was troubled with him is because they, found, they wondered what is the response going to be. There's talk of a rising king of the Jews. Uh, I heard somebody put it this way. All the aprons in Jerusalem said, if Herod ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. <laughs> so everybody's on pins and needles like, what in the world is going to happen? I heard, I heard someone else say this one time. You know, in the Lord's Prayer, we pray, Thy kingdom come. We just prayed that a little while ago. Thy kingdom come. But this friend made this point. When, when we pray, Thy kingdom come, we're also praying something else. My kingdom go. And ironically, Herod got that. He got that with unusual clarity. 
And it's worth us pausing to think. Now, and again, what kind of Jewish king did he envision? Was it someone who dies for sins? No, no, that's not what he would envision. But he got this. If the Messiah appears, it will change everything in my life. And the irony is, that's true of anyone. You know, if we're sitting here sort of in a Christmas cozy blanket and we're thinking that the Messiah can be in our lives and not take all kinds of plans that we had and all kinds of mental pictures that we had about how it would be in my life and in my future and not dash them to the ground, then the irony is we lack Herod's clarity. But that was one response. Eliminate the threat immediately because this will change everything. What about the response of the clergy? Herod, this is, I mean, if you think about it, this is very unusual. An ungodly man assembles a theological gathering and he poses to them a theological question and they nail it. Now, they didn't speak in terms of chapter divisions, but they quote from Micah chapter 5. they, They got a hundred on the test. They said, the Christ will be born, Christ and Messiah, those mean the same thing. He's going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. And there were two Bethlehems, and they get it right. It's just this little town six miles from where they're sitting. But what question would you... Let's put it this way. What question would we have expected them to ask at that point? Here's a man who's not devout, who's not really theologically minded. He convenes a theological gathering. He asks them a theological question. Wouldn't we expect someone to ask what? Why are you asking this? Uh, a friend of mine who, um, one thing that we share is, is the love of old Neil Young music. He lives in Nashville, and, is, and he's in the music industry. In fact, the TV show Nashville has actually played one of his songs, so that's my little brush with fame. And, uh, but uh, several years ago, this friend of mine, he was, he was on a trip, and he had left town. So I think he was at least 30 minutes, I want to say maybe 45 minutes outside of Nashville, and a friend of his called him and said, so-and-so just saw Neil Young in such-and-such a restaurant in Nashville. Now, you know when you're on a trip and you've, like, you've tied up loose ends and you've gotten stuff in the car and you've gotten out the door, it takes something major to turn around, like your wallet or a child. And, so, and that's like if you're 10 minutes out. He's at least half an hour out and he gets this call. Neil Young, we didn't know if this is true. Neil Young was spotted in such-and-such a restaurant immediately pulls off, turns around, heads back into Nashville, drives to the restaurant, walks in, and there is Neil Young with this man. And he walks up to the table. He doesn't speak to Neil Young. He speaks to the other man and just said, and he said, I didn't know what to say. I just said, I love this man. And he met him. Just, just on the rumor that that could be, like by the time I got to him, it was third hand. And it was drop everything and go if this might be true, if a non-devout man is asking, where is the Christ to be born? We would expect someone to say, King Herod, your highness, what prompted you to ask us that question? And there's no record that anyone asked. And in some ways, not to be overly dramatic about it, in some ways this is the most alarming response to me because of our setting. Ours is a Bible Belt gathering. 
And when I say Bible Belt, I don't want that to sound like that's always a put down. There are incredible blessings that are afforded by living where we live and having the resources that we have. And there are people in parts of the world that would give anything to have what we have. But sometimes familiarity breeds contempt. And there's actually a way to master biblical content and be unmoved by it. There's actually a way to know a lot about biblical content. There's, there's a way to even know the lyrics of the songs we sang. And it may be that compared to the five-person radius around you right now that you know more about Jesus and biblical claims than anybody in that circle. And it may be that it's been years since you adored Him. And it's conceivable that you never have. And that should give us pause. Now there's this third response, and this is my favorite one. And it's these wise men. Now remember, they are from another country. We don't know which one, but it's an eastern country. So think something like Persia, Arabia. These are men who traffic in magic and omens and dreams and astrology. That's their bread and butter. And I thought about how to say this, and I I don't know if if what I'm about to say, I don't know if it's helpful or it sounds gooby, but I'm just going to say it this way. You know, we talk about love languages. You know, some people's love language is touch. So, you know, if they love you, they're just just all over you. Dana has a friend that when she talks to you, she'll, she'll rub your elbow skin, and we just go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hers is touch. Uh, It may be acts of service. um, It may be gift giving. But, you know, different people have different love languages. All right. For these men, their love language was stars. And that's how God talked to them. And by doing that, He brought men into a story that did not require them. We're accustomed to them being in the story. We're accustomed to them being on the card or the nativity scene. Nothing about the life of the Messiah required their presence, but God brought them into it by, if I can put it this way, He spoke their love language to them. He brings them into the area of Judea through the placement of the star. Now think about what that means. And without getting into all the details, their travel time there and back may have been something along the lines of six months, give or take. You know, in my mental picture, the three guys in the pointed turbans, they're just kind of like over a sand hill from Bethlehem. They kind of come like, maybe they camped out for two days. They probably have traveled for something like round trip six months. They get into Judea. They do what anybody would do that had questions and needed to get information. They go to the capital. They go to Jerusalem. But the star directs them, and they get this information about Bethlehem, to Bethlehem in particular. And here's the really supernatural part. Whatever it was, whatever it was, star in the sky, sometimes angels are called stars in the Scripture. So maybe it was star in the sky, and then it was angel over a location. But they come to the house where Jesus is. Now, that throws us a curveball 
because that means the nativity scenes are wrong. Given the information in the text and the timeline it's following, this is not in the stable. This is months later. Maybe quite a bit later. So this entourage comes riding into Bethlehem and they come to this house and the star is over the house. And this is so great. It doesn't say that they see the star and go, ah, great, closure. Verse 10 has to be one of the most emphatic sentences in the Bible. It just stacks descriptors. They didn't just rejoice. They didn't just rejoice exceedingly. They didn't just rejoice exceedingly with joy. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. These are men grabbing each other's shoulders, just going, ah, yes. There it is. That same friend that I told you that turned around to meet Neil Young, before that incident, I went with him and a mutual friend to see Neil Young at a concert in Chicago. And uh, we flew up to Chicago. I'd never flown that far for a concert. We got a hotel room. We got to the hotel. He was so excited just that we were in Chicago and the concert was that night that when we got in the room, he started to robot dance in the hotel room. For like, for like 10 solid minutes, he just robot danced. Um, we have supper. We make our way to the, to the place where he's performing. And uh, this friend, is, he's right beside me. And the house lights come down. And uh, the floodlights go on. And when Neil Young stepped out, my friend began laughing uncontrollably. I mean, he, like, you know, we've talked about, Neil Young taught us how to play guitar. And he rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, it was not my intention for, like, the illustration of the Messiah to be Neil Young, this whole sermon, but things happen. But he rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They see this house and they just are thrilled. And picture, Bethlehem's not a big town. Whether it's three or twenty, here's this entourage of Easterners. They come to this house and maybe they have an interpreter. And so we, it doesn't mention Joseph. He might be at work. And, uh, or wherever. But Mary's there. And she opens the door and maybe she has the babe on the hip, or maybe he's just, if he's one or six months old, he might just be sitting there, and she lets them in. Maybe the interpreter explains they want to meet him. And instead of the nativity scene where they're standing by the cattle, picture them walking into the house, and there he is. And the first thing they do And these are men who knew what it was to prostrate themselves in front of of kings. They bowed down, grown men, and they worshipped him on the floor of that house. And then they got up, and and I love this. It says, opening up their, just, just the drama of that, you know, they open up these sacks And they hand him gold and frankincense and myrrh. Joseph and Mary were poor. Who knows what a game changer that was for them or whether they gave it away or what. And then they went home. And they went home safely because God spoke another love language. He spoke to them in a dream and he must have given each of them the same dream to protect them. 
And I want you to think about this. I want you to think about when these men left on that journey. Were they all married? I don't know. But they would have had friends. They would have had co-workers. They would have worked for some kind of a ruler. For them to come to whoever, spouse or boss, and say, we are going, we've seen the star of the Jewish king, and we're going to worship him. How long will you be gone? We don't know. Maybe a year. What will you do when you find him? We're going to worship him and bring him gifts. And what else? That's all. And then we're returning. And that's what they did. What was the point? That was the point. That he's worth it. And then they went home. Now what are we supposed to do with all that? If you're here this morning and if you're honest with yourself, you're not able to say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I believe and trust in Jesus Christ for eternal life. I believe He is God and man who can make me clean. If you're not able to say that, as as we say often, it thrills us that you're here. And I really want you to keep coming so we fill in some of these spaces. But I want you to think about one point. On the one hand, God goes to a group of people with a whole different brand of spirituality. And He loves them. He's not angry at them. He loves them. He protects them along the way and really protects them on the way home. There's that. But when He speaks their love language, what is He saying to them? Your brand of spirituality is not enough. In other words, it's not as if we can say, well, you know, for Him, it's Jesus, and for Him, it's sorcery or astrology, and for her, it's this religious leader or this practice. But we all have our different ways to God. God comes to them and speaks their love language to say, no. No, I want you to do something that is completely out of what you're accustomed to. I want you to go to Him, and He leads them to Him. And that is God in His love to an unexpected group of people saying, He's the one you need. That what you've been sort of grabbing for with the supernatural, stars, runes, scrolls, if you want the supernatural, you'll find it in Him. But it'll be on His terms. Magic is trying to control the supernatural on our terms. You'll have to let go but you'll get all the supernatural you want. You'll get something... You'll get the one who made those stars. And we would want that for you. And that if you're not able to say, I I know the one who made the stars, if nothing else, when you leave this place, or maybe during communion, to say to God, whatever it looks like for you to get me to Jesus so that I see Him for what He is, is your greatest gift. Will you get me to Him? And then hang on. But if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, let me just end with this. Um, A young woman about my age who worked for the same campus ministry that I worked for, when uh, when she applied for a position with RUF, 
after college, she went through an interview. It was kind of a little committee interviewed her. And, um, and they asked her things about her background and her life. And uh, they asked her about her beliefs. And they asked her about uh, her understanding of some basic Christian doctrine. Asked her, what, what do you think you'd say to a student if they were going through this? Pro-? I mean, just it was some interview questions. But she told me afterward that a man at the end of the interview asked her a question and no one had ever asked her this. And it was an interview. He was an older man. He said, honey, now I know this man and this is not creepy boss, honey. This is like, think grandfatherly, honey. He said, honey, do you love Jesus? Like really love him. And she said she started crying. And she said, yes, sir, I do. <laughs> but it just, it just, he went to a place we don't often go. Like, what's your background? What's your interest in the job? Why do you think you can do it? You know, are we on the same page doctrinally? And they had to ask all those questions. But the one he wanted to know is, do you love him? And I want to ask that question of you. If, if you. if you are a professing believer in Him, I, I know there's all this Christian stuff we're supposed to do. In our work, and in families, and out there in the world. And yeah, we're, we need to be doing deeds of mercy that kind of spike in December, but we need to do them in April and September. There's all this stuff that we've got to do. But I want to end on this question. For you who profess His name, do we love Him? When is the last time you adored Him? Just set aside all that I need to do for Jesus in this world. To set it aside and just to say to you, I love you. And the the only reason I love you must be that you loved me first. And, you know, some of us come with soft hearts this morning. Some of us come with hard hearts. If you come with a hard heart, one last reminder and then I'm finished. That phrase, King of the Jews, disappears after this story until the end of Matthew. You know where it reappears? It's the sign over Jesus' head on the cross. Here he is bearing our lies and lusts and selfishness and even bearing our apathy about Him. And it says, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. And He's dying for some Jews who turn to Him, and He's dying for a lot of Gentiles because He loves us. Worship is the point. It doesn't have to have any other rationale Adoring Him and loving Him and enjoying Him and responding to Him is the point. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we love You. And if we love You, it can only be because You first loved us and change these old hearts. Thank you for the great merciful God you are, creator, sustainer, savior.
shepherd, friend, strong tower. Lord Jesus, may we enjoy you and delight in you and be close to you because that's what you made us for. We pray this in your name. Amen.